look out, the attention economy is collapsing, and ABC Family Channel rebrands as Freeform, and who cares? This is episode 35 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Tom, look out above. The attention economy is collapsing and it's going to take us all with it. I'm moving. That's... <laughs> this is from a piece in a publication called The Media Briefing. The title is Peak Content, The Collapse of the Attention Economy. I love the use of the term peak anything nowadays. We had peak TV. We talked about that. And, of course, if you go way back, when I was in college, they were talking about peak oil, which, by the way, I think happened about 20 years ago, and only now are we still washing it. So Exactly. <laughs> if that's any harbinger, I don't know. Um, but it's written by a guy named Kevin Anderson, and here's the gist of it. The gist of it, and I think this article is really from the perspective of journalism primarily, who are the people who suffer most when there's peak content. Right. <laughs> For a long time, he writes, we've been creating too much content. <laughs> Which I guess you could take issue with that <laughs> statement right off the bat. So much so that I've been thinking we have already reached peak content, the point at which the glut of things to read, watch, and listen becomes completely unsustainable. There hasn't been enough ad revenue to sustain it for years, and with 2015 ending in a rush of acquisitions, consolidations, and funding rounds with eye-watering valuations, 2016 will mark the beginning of a shakeout. Tom, is the shakeout coming this year? I don't think any huge shakeout is coming. You know, he he writes in the article that it's one of the few workable business models to produce as much content as cheaply as possible. Right. Um, but, you know, are, are there going to be a lot of these organizations that just aren't going to be able to figure out how to hold together these, you know, these legacy content creation machines that they've mm-hmm. created over time? Oh, of course. You know, look no further than what's happening with the increasing oil supply and the falling oil prices, right? The industry instability is amazing right now. Mm-hmm. Nobody's really sure what's going to happen. But here's the thing. See, in media, there's no end in sight. There's an economic barrier to fracking and drilling wells. But there is no barrier to publishing content online. And right. There's scarcity. You're saying there's scarcity built into that economic function of uh, oil drilling, and there's no scarcity when it comes to media content. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. Corporations are jumping in to this owned media content marketing bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Solopreneurs right. are using content to, to figure out how to draw attention and monetize expertise. Every wannabe musician, comedian, makeup artist, you name it, they're creating and posting daily YouTube videos. What is the barrier that prevents more and more and more and more people doing this? Toss in Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest postings, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, you know, OMG, right? What the hell is a media consumer to do? (laughs) Well, I think that's what's interesting about this. It's so written from the perspective of people in the news business trying to keep their boats afloat using traditional um, business models, I think it misses the larger point that not only that this may be unsustainable from the perspective of a traditional advertising-based business model, but it's not unsustainable from the perspective of consumption and it's not unsustainable from the perspective of production 
Uh, nor is it unsustainable when it comes to appetites. The fact that there's more and more for me to winnow, to find less and less of what really interests me the most, there's no downside to that for me. The fact that we are now a world of grazers does not make things worse for me or harder for me as a consumer, right? See, that's exactly right. What's happening is the fragmentation, because of the lack of barriers, is allowing... I mean, think about it. If you're a writer and you can find a 1,000 people to pay you to write from your kitchen table, you know, to f- somehow fund that revenue model, then, you know, all the power to you. So it's this breaking up and this redirection of people's attention. That's what's driving all these legacy, legacy media companies crazy. Yeah, it's making them nuts. And, and they love to wallow in statistics. He writes, in 2013, Digiday looked at who was winning the volume game, game in publishing. It's ancient history in terms of digital media, but back then the New York Times in its 1,100-strong newsroom was pumping out 350 pieces of content per day, while Huffington, their 500-plus staffers, were flooding the Internet with 1,200 pieces of content per day, right. not to mention the 400 blog posts per day from their network of low-paid or unpaid bloggers. You can read between the lines the resentment there. Of course, jun- journalists are not the only ones creating content. By July 2015, 400 hours of video were being uploaded to YouTube every minute, um, and literally billions of pieces of content shared on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Vine, Snapchat, updates over a given day, a notion of content marketing, and your favorite TV series and movie franchises ready to binge, and that leaves most people very little time to sleep, eat, or do anything else. Yeah, the notion here is just because there is this mass of content, you must somehow consume all of it. As, as if you have no choice in the matter. <laughs> no, yeah, but you know where that comes from? It's the assumption that there is this thing called an aggregated audience. Mm-hmm. And, and he's, you know, they're, they're saying that audience has to consume a select amount of media or media properties. Okay, take that aggregation, break it up into tens of thousands of little audiences. Mm-hmm. Now do you have the same problem? No, they don't have the same problem anymore as far as that goes. Now they have a problem with how are we going to reach all of these tiny audiences that are all over the place and appeal specifically to them. Right, and that is not a problem that most uh, media platforms have which don't rely on that kind of massive scale. I mean, when you're, when you're built to depend on massive scale, you've got a problem, namely that massive scale no longer exists. That's right, right. that's right. Um, that people don't agree on what group they want to be in anymore. But when you've got, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of little tiny audiences in, uh, internally uh, congruent, right? Right. Um, what they want is more of what they want. And it turns out that if you focus more on less, if there's more competition for the short head, the short head becomes still the, 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 the biggest, the most influential and profitable part of the head, no matter how small the audience gets, as long as you're appealing to that audience, right? Yeah, and see, and that's why I agree with some of his, his recommendations, his conclusions, like, oh, it can improve strategic focus. That's what you're talking about right there. Uh, iterative agility. I mean, because who could possibly disagree with that? Iterative. Right. <laughs> I mean, we're not on a sailing ship any longer. We're all surfing now. But I right. have a problem with this conclusion. In the conclusion, he writes that in the coming post-peak content shakeout, if there's going to be one, the focus on monetization will seize primacy from the blind rush for any form of audience attention and scale. (laughs) And then he writes, huge audiences don't matter in the absence 
of a business model. Holy cow. Yes, they do. That is the playbook of Google, Facebook, Netflix, mm. and Amazon. Con true. Right? Control the eyeballs, the entry point for customers. That gives you power over the companies that sell what the customers are actually buying, the content and the products. Then you figure out the business model. So I, I don't know what he's saying here. I, I think what he's saying is these, these companies that are going to be selling through these entry points, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Netflix, Amazon, that's going to shake out. Some of those guys are going to shake out. Of course. Yeah, that I don't believe at all. I think the, those big guys are not going to shake. That's yeah, no, he's, he's wrong. <laughs> what he's really saying in my mind is, I wish I weren't in the journalism business. <laughs> yeah, that's true, isn't it? Isn't it? You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Tom, ABC Family Channel, you've watched that many a time, have you not? I don't know. What's on it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. <laughs> uh, ABC Family Channel rebrands as, quote, freeform. And who cares, Tom? This is from a piece in The Verge, uh, and the title is awesome. I love this title, which is, What Was the TV Channel? In the midst of cable's existential meltdown, ABC Family rebrands to Freeform. You know, what was a TV channel, and what does it mean for it to rebrand in this day and age? I've seen lots of these things over the years, as I know you have. Some of them I've been involved with, <laughs> even on the TV side. And they used to matter a lot more because, you know, where the content was was really super important once upon a time. Nowadays, it's not so important. Uh, this writer writes, as early as 2012, Business Insider's Henry Blodgett concluded that, quote, networks are completely meaningless. We don't know or care which network owns the rights to a show or where it was broadcast. The only question that's relevant is whether it's available on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, or iTunes. And you know what? That's even truer now than it was four years ago. And now that those web-born platforms are produce, producing original series of their own, including many of today's most talked about and or award-winning shows, Netflix has become to TV what Facebook is to the Internet. So, Tom, what does it mean to rebrand a network? <laughs> Listen, it doesn't make any sense at all because it's all just a shorthand for something. You said, you were funny because you said, oh, the TV network, you know, the channel used to matter. And, yeah. and, you know, I don't even know that the name of the channel ever mattered because back in the day, the shortcut was what's on channel four? I never knew what the name of the damn network was. It was channel four, put on channel four. But look, you got to give him credit. I love the name Freeform. It's honest. It's like Freeform Jazz. It says we don't know what the hell we're going to play and we don't want to be classified, right? Yes, except for one thing. This particular <laughs> channel, because it, uh, it came from uh, Pat Robertson and the Christian Broadcasting Network, it is now obligated. And I've actually looked at the uh, broadcast schedule and it's, it's worse than you think. It's obligated to multiple daily showings of Robertson's longstanding religious talk show, The 700 Club, and other religious shows that aren't even listed here. There are hours in the day. Now, they're usually off hours, you know, very early, very late, but it doesn't change the fact that this new network targeted at what's called becomers, because they're people in formation, age 14 to 34, um, has old Pat Robertson opening and closing the day with hours of content yeah. on the very same channel that has, uh, you know, the uh, uh, young adult content. Yeah, look, it's it's what it's what's being offered that matters to people. That, that frankly, no one cares about these names. The creators and owners of these companies and organizations, they believe that we care about their names. 
I swear to you, the logos, the taglines, they spend a lot of money and a lot of time. We don't care. Uh, and you know what? Email me. Apple is a terrible name for a computer company. It's terrible. <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, what kind of media conglomerate names are those? And, I, and look, you, I just heard that Coke, they just came up with a new tagline because I, I guess open happiness hasn't been working for the last seven years. So they spent, <laughs> I didn't know that existed. <laughs> oh, yes. That was, it's open happiness. So now they spend big bucks on a new tagline. You ready for it? Yes. Taste the feeling. Now... <laughs> Do you think any of that matters? In 1906, you know what the Coke's tagline was? The what Great was National Temperance Beverage. Mark. I like that one better. This, this stuff is irrelevant. With media brands, we care about books and authors, not publishers. We care about musicians and songs, not record labels. We care about movies and actors, not studios. So in this case, is the, brand, the show is the brand... The network is just the container for the brand. The thing we care about is the actual brand, and it's not the network. It's exactly. The and, that's, and you know what's really ironic? This change came from a company with the brand name, the Walt Disney Company. Mm-hmm. This is a name which conjures up a cartoon mouse, yet they are <laughs> one of the world's largest media companies, Right. Uh, okay, I guess they're not going to listen anymore. Right? No, they're, they're not. They just tuned out. Um, I just love the idea that they're doing this with you know a fourteen to uh, what did I say fourteen to thirty year old uh, target fourteen to thirty four, and then they got Pat Robertson opening the day. I just there's some kind of hideous irony to that that I I, I just can't uh, I, I can't get my hands around. Listen, you're not going to find any sense in this. Do you do you know how people do you know how they rationalize however much money they spent with whoever came up with this name Freeform? Tell me. This is from Tell a press me. release. Listen. The audience's identity and experience are fluid as they explore <laughs> endless possibilities and their passions take shape. Freeform personifies this fluidity and will deliver ideas, forms of content, and ways of interacting with the brand. I know you're laughing, but this... And and now we join the 700 Club, already in progress. (laughs) He he has a line in here also, which I think is interesting, because he's trying to drive home that it is possible to create a, a channel with a point of view, right? The few networks that survive outside of the comfort of a bundle will be the ones that mean something to people that have built up a recognizable point of view. And here he's talking about HBO primarily. And I think the funny part is what, you know, give me an example that was created yesterday. Don't give me an example that was created 30 years ago. Even Netflix was created for a completely different game than the one it's in now. And even that was created, what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Netflix? Mm. So the idea that you can do this today just because it was done once upon a time, I think, is a little naive, right? Look, Mark, the channels that are going to attract audiences are the channels that are giving the audiences specifically what they want, like the NFL (laughs) Network. (laughs) The fact that you have to say that like it's an insight and news is just so funny, isn't it? Well, I mean, but look at what you're getting, and then you'll see that that it isn't obvious. I guess I do. You're absolutely right. All right, it's time for Rants and Raves. I'm going to start today, Tom. What do you think well, about that? Well, good. Let's shake it up. <laughs> All right. I've got a couple of uh, rants for you today. The first one, okay, I was reading this book. It was called Listening Brands, How Data is Rewriting the Rules of Branding by J.R. Little. Actually, an interesting book. Of course you were. Of course you were, because it has data in there. Exactly. It has data in it. And yes, which is what both rants are about, by the way, so you're anticipating <laughs> 
So he has a line in there. He, he uses as one of his anecdotes the infamous uh, Oreo dunk in the dark Super Bowl example. And I thought, I have now officially seen that anecdote used to support whatever the argument is one too many times. <laughs> have you not read that anecdote oh, yeah. in about a million different places, a million different books? Yep. I, it, it, and I thought, well, you know what? Let me look up and see what the impact was of that um, effort on sales of Oreos. And you know what, Tom? Go ahead. <laughs> I can't find a thing. There is nowhere online, anywhere, where they indicate that there was a tangible impact on sales as a result of this standout, remarkable, in the middle of the Super Bowl, Oreo dunk in the dark example. That said, it's not for lack of hoping. He has a line in the book, it says, it probably didn't have an enormous immediate business impact. Translation, I couldn't find one either. But it definitely benefited the reputation. Now, <laughs> Tom, what is the reputation of a cookie maker worth? Uh, I have to ask you. I don't know, because I'm always worried when I go to the cookie aisle whether I can trust <laughs> that cookie or not. You know? yeah. People are still talking about it, including me. Yes, including you and including everyone else who writes a book on marketing, advertising, or social media nowadays. I just thought, I've, I hope springs eternal. I've heard enough of the stupid Oreo dunk in the dark commercial. Well, listen, Mark, if you, want to do, if you want to do a study, take a look and see what has happened since Donald Trump said he'd never buy another Oreo. Because I think he, he said that because they moved some plant to Mexico. So look that up and see what happens to the sales. You know what? I think I'm more likely to see a negative impact on their sales as a result of that than a result of what <laughs> happened during the Super Bowl. So here's the second one. <clears throat> and this one's kind of related in a sense because it also involves the difference between bluster and data. Um, it's from, uh, a, piece, uh, it's from a, a piece in uh, Recode from um, uh, Peter Kafka, their media writer. And here's what he says. The bigger question is how value. Oh, it's uh, the the topic is uh, Facebook is going to be hoovering up uh, the data that you whatever you talk about uh, that you see on television. They're going to hoover that up and provide it in some form of social TV ratings to the networks. What's that mean? Hoover it up, like vacuum it up? Suck it up. <laughs> he uses that term, and I liked it, so okay. I thought I'd appropriate it. Okay. And uh, obviously, it's an awful term to use. <laughs> Doesn't communicate. The bigger question, he writes, is how valuable this information is to TV networks and advertisers. At one point a few years ago, the theory was that social media chatter could actually boost TV ratings. And even if it couldn't, the argument went slash evolved. It would be valuable for, for programmers and advertisers to know which show generated a lot of on online conversation because, well, engagement. <laughs> Nielsen and Twitter will still argue that online activity can boost offline ratings, but they're much less noisy about that argument nowadays. The more convincing argument would be something like this, colon. Sure, we can't precisely tell you how much it matters that people are talking about making a murderer, but we're sure it matters in some way. And wouldn't you rather have that information than not have it? <laughs> I love that. That's a great sales pitch. <laughs> I, I just thought that's so absolutely true. Nobody really knows. Um, what the impact of this stuff yet is, and yet we still gather it. And once again, I have a direct illustration of this for you, Tom, because I'm back from the Critics' Choice Awards broadcast live on A&E and LMN and Lifetime last week, and uh, I have reports on uh, the outcomes with regard to ratings and social. And oh my, the social media was through the roof, Tom. <laughs> the, uh, the, at Critics' Choice, 
uh, sent out 147 tweets. The total reach from own content, almost 6 million. Whoa. Um, the total tweets received during the show from viewers or whoever, <laughs> you can see it's whoever, 119,000, seen by 3.4 million people, a total of 16.9 million times, up 30% from last year. And that amounted to ratings, and now this was for a show broadcast on three networks simultaneously, A&E, Lifetime, and LMN. The gross audience, 1.5 million people, uh, of whom, and this is the, maybe the most fascinating part, less than 600,000 were at persons 25 to 54, less than 500,000 were persons 18 to 49. Now, if you do that math, Tom, <laughs> 1.5 million minus 490,000, there are a whole lot of people that are super old watching this show and watching TV and cable, period. <laughs> so again, and those are not the people that are tweeting or responding to tweets. So here you have a great scorecard on Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, and a somewhat lackluster scorecard in ratings, leading to the question, what does it mean when people talk about TV on social media? Isn't it just possible that people just like to talk about the topics covered on that TV and social media, that one thing doesn't necessarily lead to the next, which is actually viewing the show? I mean, isn't there a leap between talking about what somebody is wearing when a photo is posted on Twitter and actually tuning into a show on one of three cable networks? Do you catch my drift there, Tom? I do. I do. It makes a lot of sense, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Rant over. Okay. All right. Well, then I got to give people a, a breather from, your, from the data rant, and I'll go... <laughs> And I'll go the opposite direction, and I'll give them a creativity rave. So I think, it, I think we have to do this. It's fitting. So this rave goes way, way out there into the deep, dark universe to David Robert Jones, Major Tom, Ziggy Stardust, mm. Aladdin Sane, the incomparable David Bowie, a true hero of our time. And I tell you, I say hero as opposed to star, because I recently listened to Bowie's final creation, Black Star. I don't know if you've, if you've listened to it yet, but you... you I saw the video for the quote-unquote single Black Star. Okay, and watch his startling Lazarus video with the dying David Bowie portrayed as a hospital patient. And I've been thinking about the distinction between a star and a hero. And this is what I think. Stars are static. They're like stars in the sky. They're always there. They're in the same place. They comfort us. They provide assurance, warmth, light. There are no surprises with stars. They give us what we expect of them, like John Wayne or Jimmy Buffett. Heroes are dynamic. They're unpredictable. They experiment. They dare. They stretch themselves and us, our beliefs in what's acceptable and what's possible. They change the way we look at the world and how we look at ourselves, our identities. So heroes are precursors of cultural change and growth. They're active, catalytic agents in society's evolution. Heroes move us. David Bowie moved us. He may be a star man now, but he was truly a hero as a human being, and we'll miss him very much. Wow, I can't top that. That's awesome, Tom. I agree completely. And uh, thank you for painting that distinction between star and hero. Ideally, people would like to be both. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. But you know, you got to pick one. 
<laughs> That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You know that already. Come on, rate it. You can also catch us at SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Village, Net News Check. Tom, our, our distribution network is just out it's of control. just going up there. But we won't and be the on American, the Disney platform. <laughs> the American Marketing <laughs> Association. And now Disney.com. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom A. Sacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there is a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Mr. Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at Jeff-Schmidt.com. Hire this guy. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you so much for listening. to be a different man.